0: Welcome to Human Circus. At times in this series, I've talked about the near-mythical nature of this character we're discussing... How Marco Polo can easily fade into legend in our minds, and how there was that story of him on his deathbed being challenged by a friend to correct the record and remove any fabrications while he still could. On that occasion, he is to have said that if anything, he'd actually held material back, and that the truth was only more wonderful, not less. That end of life acquaintance was not the last person to question Marco Polo's story. His medieval audience often read it as romance or fable, and there's been a tradition of skepticism ever since where his accounts are concerned. Was his role with Kublai Khan as he said it was? Did he get out of Kublai's capital to see the rest of China? Did he even go to China at all? Did he actually make it east of the Black Sea? Was he instead spending two decades in Constantinople and his family's other places of business? Was his book only a patchwork of Persian travel narratives? It's a line of questioning that has long existed and was reignited in the 1990s by a new book on the topic. Today, I'll be picking up those questions. Hello and welcome back. I'm Devin, and this is Human Circus. At this time, I'd like to remind you that rating, reviewing, and subscribing is how we keep the horsemen from our walls and that you can find me online at humancircuspodcast.com. I posted a little written edition to the last episode there, on the end of the song in Marco and Otherwise, and I'll keep doing that with the pieces that don't, for whatever reason, quite fit into the main podcast narrative. So do give that a look if you're interested. I also have an announcement to make, that the podcast now has a Patreon page, And that you can find it at patreon.com forward slash human circus if helping me tell stories of medieval history sounds like something you might be interested in. And on that note, I have some patrons to thank. Angela, David, Kaz, Ashley, Shoni, Chris, and Rosa. Thank you all very much. It means a lot to me. And now let's get back into the story. Last episode, I told you about Marco Polo's strangely triumphalist depiction of Kublai Khan as the bearer of the Genghisid dynastic legacy, and we left off with the mention that Marco is said to have been on site to witness the violent end of the Khan's head of finance, Ahmed. This episode, it's on to the question of whether he was in China at all, and if so, what was he doing there? We're going to talk about some of the answers that have been proposed in response to these questions, But we'll start with what the text has to say. What does it tell us he was doing? Of course, the short answer is that it doesn't tell us a whole lot, at least explicitly. In a few of his few personal references, Marco says that he acquired the wool of a yak and the dried head and hooves of a musk deer, that he was once kidnapped along with many of his companions who lost their lives, or that he had to recover from illness for a time, in the crisp, clean, mountain air of what is now Afghanistan. And all of these fragments pass the reader by quickly. They come and they are gone without further explanation. But if, as the reader, you're wishing for more, you find to your amusement that when he does stretch out into personal anecdote, it's straight into one of the book's most renowned falsehoods. It's the story of the siege of Xiangyang, the Song Fortress City which blocked the tributary south. The siege had actually concluded in 1273, a few years before Marco had even reached the Khan's court, but that didn't stop him from writing his family in or from giving them a real starring role in the proceedings. Xiangyang, along with its pontoon-bridge-linked sister city, Fancheng, had been proving a tough nut to crack. Its population of 200,000 was protected by 6 kilometers of 7-meter walls and a 90-meter-wide moat with one side opened onto the river, itself a 500-meter-wide avenue for resupply when in flood, and at other times a tangled maze of shallows. Actually getting at those walls was exceedingly difficult, let alone storming or undermining them, but it had to be done. Marco positions the city as a last holdout at the end of the war against the Song, falling only after the rest of the empire had already been defeated. Really, though, It was an earlier move in that campaign. The city was the door that needed to be opened in order for the Mongols to move south along the waterways, and the defenders knew it. They'd been prepping, they'd been strengthening their fortifications and securing supplies, and then they'd been busily resisting nearly three years of siege. There'd been occasional attempts to break out quickly stifled, and there'd been periodic battles as resupply fleets tried to fight their way into the city getting men and resources in, but suffering massive losses in the process. While the Mongol besiegers were coming out on top in these encounters, there was little progress being made against the city itself, and little sign that things were going to change soon. Something had to be done, so that's when the Polos stepped in, and, in Marco's telling, really showered themselves with glory. They stepped up before the Khan at his court, and they addressed him like this, quote, We could find you a way of forcing the city to surrender speedily, whereupon those of the army replied that they would be right glad to know how that should be. All this talk took place in the presence of the great Khan, for messengers had been dispatched from the camp to tell him that there was no taking the city by blockade, for it continually received supplies of victuals from those sides which they were unable to invest, and the great Khan had sent back word that take it they must and find a way how. Then spoke up the two brothers, and Mr. Marco the son, and said, Great prince, we have with us among our followers, men who are able to construct mongonels, which shall cast great stones that the garrison will never be able to stand them, but will surrender incontinently as soon as the mongonels or trebuchets shall have shot into the town. Well, that certainly sounded quite all right to Kublai, and he bathed them with all his heart to begin at once. The Polos set to work. They gathered timber and those followers they'd spoken of, according to one translation, a German, and a Nestorian Christian who were masters of that business. And in another, Nestorians who were not their followers at all, but rather some of the ablest smiths and carpenters under the Khan's command. The Polos and their team constructed a pair of mongonels capable of hurling 300-pound rocks at their target, and once completed, the two siege engines were demonstrated for the Khan, who marvelled at their effectiveness. Then, to quote Marco, What shall I tell you? When the engines were set up and putting gear, a stone was shot from each of them into the town. These took effect among the buildings, crashing and smashing through everything, with huge din and commotion. And when the townspeople witnessed this new and strange visitation, They were so astonished and dismayed that they wist not what to do or say. They took counsel together, but no counsel could be suggested how to escape from these engines, for the thing seemed to them to be done by sorcery. They declared that they were all dead men if they yielded not, so they determined to surrender on such conditions as they could get. They straightway sent word to the commander of the army that they were ready to surrender on the same terms as the other cities of the province had done and to become the subjects of the great Khan, and to this the captain of the host consented. So the men of the city surrendered, and were received to terms, and all of this came about through the exertions of Mr. Niccolo, and Mr. Maffeo, and Mr. Marco, and it was no small matter. Marco wasn't wrong about that. The collapse of Xiangyang wasn't small at all, but it wasn't quite as he described it either. Kublai had not set about in helpless vexation until his illustrious Venetian guests proposed a solution. He dispatched a messenger, who in only five weeks had reached the city of Tabriz to find the Khan's nephew, Abaka, heir to Hulagu's Ilkhanate. What Kublai needed were better siege engines, capable of the power and range the city situation required. Or rather, he needed better siege engineers. And that was what the Ilkhan Mongols had. They'd used massive counterweight trebuchets when they'd taken Baghdad, Aleppo, Damascus, and other cities. And it turned out that they could spare an engineer or two for their eastern cousins. So it wasn't Niccolo Maffeo and Marco who engineered the fall of Xiangyang. It was Ishmael and Ala al-Din who wintered with their families as guests of Kublai, and then, in the spring of 1272, started the work that was needed. By the summer of that year, Their creation stood ready to fling over 200 pounds of rocks around 200 meters, and the last phase of the siege began. First to go was the bridge connecting Xiangyang to Fancheng, and then the defenses of Fancheng itself. Its walls were broken open and its people brought out and slaughtered. They were piled high in an easy sight of Xiangyang's defenders as a preview of what they could expect for themselves. Then Ishmael turned his machine towards Xiangyang, and with the first shot struck the watchtower, shaking the city and throwing its people into complete confusion. Soon after that, a surrender was arranged. It was all kind of how Marco had said it had been, but then again not quite. Not quite when he said, or where he said it fell in the Song campaign, or who he had said deserved credit for all that siege-engine brilliance. Moments like this in the text are, I suspect, what really leads people to start to doubt the truth of the entire work. To point to them and say, well, if he's lying here, why should we believe any of it at all? Clearly, he really wasn't where he said he was. Maybe, as John W. Hager argued, he'd gotten as far as Daidu, but no further, gathering up the stories on which his book could be based. Or maybe it was all just a fantasy that Marco had cobbled together from the safety of his family's training post in the Black Sea port of Saldaya, or maybe as far east as Bukhara if we're being generous. It sources no more first-hand than first-hand encounters with Persian travelers and the reports on which the whole thing must have been based. The older Polos may well have been able to see the Khan all those years earlier and got their hands on one of those golden tablets but little Marco had not been nearly so ambitious. That was basically the contention of Frances Wood in her aptly titled 1995 book, Did Marco Polo Go to China? She argued that he didn't, and not only because of what appeared to be lies regarding his personal involvement, Wood pointed to errors in dates, distances, and descriptions, including numbers of arches on bridges, gates on walls, and that sort of thing. However, this is not an argument I find compelling. I don't remember how many windows there are on the front of the building where I work, and I walk past it multiple times most days of the week. If Marco had not written down exactly when an event had occurred and is roughly two decades away, exactly how far it had been between this city and that, or exactly how many arches were on that particular bridge in that particular city, well, I can't really blame him for not quite getting it all right. In addition to these slip ups, Wood brought up a lack of Chinese names and terms in Marco's account. But this also isn't really convincing. It seems reasonable enough to begin with that Marco would have relied on the terminology of the administrators of Persian and Turkic. And then we have historian Stephen Haw pointing out that a number of the place names used really do seem to be transliterations of 13th century Chinese, only run through the garbling pens of subsequent generations of scribes to whom the words would have been entirely unfamiliar and meaningless. Though it was not always the case, the vast majority of the Chinese locations he was referring to can now be identified with relative ease. So that's all very understandable. But what about Marco's failure to include fairly striking aspects of Chinese culture? There were no observations as to the writing, tea drinking, or book printing. Where was the foot binding, and where was the Great Wall? After this quick pause, I'll try to answer those questions. As was mentioned last episode, Marco does not seem to have been enormously interested in Chinese culture, or with few exceptions, the Chinese themselves and this lack of interest might go some way to explain why he didn't really settle into descriptions of the writing system, and why there's no tea drinking going on. His interests were those of his patron Kublai. They were those of the conquerors and the administrators. He was not, in the sense, a man of the people. That point aside, let's look at the specifics. It's true enough that he doesn't write of the wonders of book printing, But he does seem impressed by money printing. There's actually a fairly detailed passage on its production. As for foot binding, it should be noted that one manuscript does contain a reference to certain Chinese women walking with extremely small steps, and this could have been a reference to foot binding. If so, whether the women in question were bound themselves or were mimicking the walk of those who were, it would have been much more readily observable than the binding itself for an outsider. Finally, As others have noted before me, if we are to say that Marco has been caught out in not including some of these aspects of Chinese culture, and that he must have gotten his information from other sources, other more reliable travelers, then we would have to ask why those sources had no such information, and so on, and so on. So what else did Wood have to say? One of the main points she and others have relied on to challenge Marco's presence in the East is the total lack of any mention of him or his family in the Chinese sources. If he really was, as he'd claimed, governor of Yangzhou for three years, then where were the records verifying this? Why was there no record of him at all? It has to be acknowledged that Marco probably wasn't the governor of Yangzhou for three years, that this was a lie, an embellishment, an exaggeration to some degree at least. But that aside... We don't know if he appears under a different Mongol or Chinese name. We don't know what name we should be looking for. Additionally, we should not be surprised if his presence, assuming he didn't really govern a city, was simply not noted at all. Other well-known travelers, such as Uderic of Portonone and Giovanni de Montecorvino, also passed through unnoticed in Chinese sources, and Giovanni de Marignoli too. An absence of evidence, of this kind at least, was not an evidence of absence. All right, you may be thinking, but what about the wall? What kind of person goes to China and doesn't mention the Great Wall? The simple answer to the wall question is that the Great Walls have not always been so great. While the idea of the Long Wall had long existed, it's thought that Marco would have only chanced to see something pretty unimpressive. Pounded earth remains held together by bundled wood and forming a not-particularly-great site on the journey between Shangdu and Daidu, consider this early 14th-century poem. The high mounds of earth beside the road are said to be the ruins of the ancient Great Wall. The water in the caves of the pools along the way is good for my horse to drink. I am very lucky to live at a time of an honest and enlightened government. Peace reigns in this border area where the flames of war raged in the past. The crops are growing luxuriantly, and cattle and sheep are all over the fields. It is a pity that I cannot sing the full praises of our wise sovereign. Clearly, these are not awe-inspiring sights of power and strength. These are hillocks. They are remnants and reminders of another time, suitable for this kind of stopping by the ruins' reflection on past and present. And for Marco, they would not have carried that same cultural weight. Among all the more recent signs of war and conquest, would he have even registered these shadows of borders and dynasties that had passed from the world? If so, he didn't bother to write about it. Before I move on from the question of Marco's veracity, I want to quickly compare his observations to some of his near-contemporaries. Odoric had written of footbinding and Cormorant fishing besides. If Marco was in China, was he really such a dull fellow as to miss so much? Not at all. In fact, the renowned world traveler Ibn Battuta hadn't mentioned foot binding either, and Odoric himself had seen nothing of the writing system or of tea. Besides, Marco had his own strengths, reporting on topics which others did not or did not manage so clearly. Porcelain, coal paper money, and salamanders among them. And note that by salamanders, he meant asbestos, and identified it as not, as was commonly thought, the skin or fur of some amphibian, but rather as something to be mined and then formed into fibers, with all the unusual properties around fire, which the old lizard skins were said to have had. Marco's reporting on China has generally since been corroborated. You find, perhaps surprisingly, then once you get past issues of personal experience in the design and direction of siege engines and in governing cities, Marco was very reliable. The details concerning paper currency, administrative structures, and taxes and levies have all been found to be accurate. And on everything from the penalties for cattle theft to the work on the magnificent Grand Canal, from his description of Chinese ships to the post-mortem marriages of Mongol children, from the attempted invasion of Japan, to the planting of roadside trees, and on a multitude of other topics too, Marco has been vindicated by more recent research. The scholarly consensus, then, is that Wood's arguments were unconvincing and contained a number of misinterpretations or errors. But if we set that aside, if we set that matter to rest and accept that Marco did indeed make it to China, that leaves us still with the question of what he was doing there. One of the more believable answers the text provides is that he was frequently present in the old Song Dynasty capital of Lin'an, or as Marco calls it, the celestial city of Kinsai. So let's hear what he has to say about it. He describes its busy waterways and streets of stone and brick, its crowded markets and plazas, and its most pleasant situation between lake and river. He describes the joy of taking a boat out on the canals to sit at table and chair and be propelled along the banks by boatmen with long poles. A gratification, he says, which exceeds any that can be derived from the amusements on the land. He says that the bridges thrown across the main canals were high enough for masted ships to pass beneath. And, in an often-cited gross exaggeration, he refers to a common saying that the city contained 12,000 bridges, There were large stone warehouses for the goods of traders from India and elsewhere, and sources other than Marco record a significant community of Arab merchants. There were public baths, moderately priced wine shops, and stores selling spices, drugs, trinkets, and pearls. He speaks of delicious fruits, peaches white and yellow, imported raisins, and unusually large pears. He speaks of plentiful game of all kinds, the highly productive lake contained geese and ducks that were cheaply available, and enormous loads of fish were brought from the sea. However, he also notes that the poor had to eat whatever kind of meat they could come by, no matter how unclean. It was not a paradise. Of the people of the city, Marco has more to say than his usual rundown of idolaters, Christians, and Saracens. He notes the courtesans were in all parts of the city in numbers which he dares not venture to report, and he has nothing but high praise for them, in their appearance and charms. Travelers who experienced their company could never forget it, he says, and when they had gone away, they said that they had been to the heavenly city, and wanted nothing more than to be able to return. And he finds the other people of the city charming too, if perhaps in other ways. They were openly friendly with one another, and with strangers too, inviting them into their homes and sharing food and advice with them freely. But they had no love for soldiers. They remembered who they were conquered by, and they resented it. At times, the sheer size of the place seems to have startled Marco. I have seen estimates that the city was home to a population of one to two million, and that it was the largest in the world at the time and Marco was amazed at the number of fish which were brought into the city and all sold in only a few hours. He tries to communicate the vastness of the numbers here, of people and of goods, and he settles on pepper as his example, setting his sources a customs official. The daily tally of imported pepper was 43 loads of 243 pounds each, for a total of 10,449 pounds. And he makes the point again later, saying of the port of Chuanzhou, that so much pepper passed through it that the amount shipped on to Alexandria for Western consumption was perhaps less than a hundredth of the whole. I've pointed out that the Marco Polo text was a little short on wonders, with not much in the way of monstrous races, fantastic beasts, and that sort of thing. However, the picture of China he presents really would have been fantastic to his European audience. These would have been astonishing images he was describing, of a place beyond the Muslim world and beyond the marauding horsemen of the Asian steppes, where the massive cities of an advanced civilization rose and were inhabited by unbelievable numbers of people. Even if they don't seem that way to us, these were the wonders which would have filled his readers with amazement and doubt. Bridge quantities aside, the depiction of the city is highly believable and full of detail. The text tells us that this city was frequently visited by Marco Polo, who carefully and diligently observed and inquired into every circumstance respecting it, all of which he entered in his notes. And if you're wondering whether Marco spun the whole thing from memory, then this is a reassuring point. He was taking notes, and he would have had to to produce a text so packed full of descriptive detail and information. He would also have had to if he was to do as the text tells us and travel the wide realms of the great Khan, reporting to him on what he saw. This is probably the prevailing image of Marco Polo, that of the imperial raconteur regaling Kublai with tales of all that he could not go and see for himself, and it's presented in the text prologue. We read that Marco picked up the most commonly used languages, and, having proven himself to Kublai, was sent about on the Khan's business, or traveled for his own private reasons. And everywhere he went, he observed and he inquired. He saw that his Khan took great pleasure in hearing of new things, of the customs and practices of people, and of the many eccentricities of the lands under his rule. So Marco wrote them down as he went, returning now and then to his Khan to speak of what he'd seen and heard in the wide world, to earn his Khan's favor and the envy of the others at the court. And then he returned to Venice, and he did the same thing for us or rather for his contemporaries, in the form of this book. It's interesting, if inconclusive, to imagine that as he was apparently working from those notes, he might have told his readers some of the same stories he'd once told the Khan. I always like to ask myself, when reading travel narratives, what seems to have most interested the writer. Here, I find it entertaining to think that what we are getting, maybe muffled by the layers of transmission is what Marco thought would most interest Kublai Khan. And what was that? Whether we take them to be driven by a Mongol emperor's tastes, those of Marco himself, or his imagined audience, what themes leap off the page again and again? The basics are clearly who the people are, what they do, and what they produce. For example, he might say that at such and such a place, they are mostly idolaters, a blanket term which encompass Buddhists, but also many others that Marco did not or could not differentiate, that they live off the fruits of the land, and that they grow great quantities in the most excellent rhubarb, which is then carried abroad. I mention this first because it's very tempting as a reader to let these elements fade to white noise in the foreground of the text and jump straight to the sex and magic, but that wouldn't really be representative of the text contents. Once we get past the basics, though, what do we see? We see astonishment at the scale of business and transactions, the numbers involved. We see curiosity as to different currencies, the making and use of paper money, but also when he comes across salt cakes, porcelain, or seashells being used for the purpose. We see a clear interest in ships, whether they be the huge numbers of Chinese riverboats, 15,000 seen at one city, he claims, or the detailed workings of vessels along the Indian coast. We see, as I've already mentioned in this series, an enthusiasm for hunting, whether it be simply a potentially fruitful area, or the large scale operations of the Khan and his court. Finally, as people have often commented on, we see sex and magic. And after this pause, we'll get into that. One of the categories that seems to always catch Marco's attention is marital and sexual norms, and fair enough. He was encountering some practices and ideas that would have challenged the ones he grew up around. In one province of what he broadly terms Turkestan, he'll write that if a woman's husband is away from the home for twenty days, then she may seek another if she wishes. Another area was likely off the track of Marco's travels, and perhaps somewhere he heard about from the elder Polos or other travelers entirely. There, he says, that the men would go away when a traveler arrived leaving the women of the house to entertain the new arrival for as long as he wished to stay. Elsewhere, among the idolaters, and here he likely means Buddhists, he finds the laity living as, quote, beasts of the field, taking mortal sin with indifference, while those in the monasteries were deemed to lead more correct lives. Mongol marriages, even polygamous, are given the stamp of virtuous approval, and praised for the chastity, modesty, and solemnity involved, and also for the superior population they allowed, a population that could accomplish great military conquests or a tremendous postal system over unimaginable distances. Tibet, on the other hand, gets much more morally judgmental treatment, their customs deemed scandalous, shameful, and odious. Apparently, unwed young women would bring traveling merchants home with them, asking only a token in return that they might hang about their necks, and the girls with the most tokens were considered the most beautiful and most favored in future marriage. In some versions of the text, this was disgraceful, but in others, Marco only says that he relates it as a good story to tell, and to show what a fine country that is for young fellows to go in. Marco also tells us about magic, and maybe he told Kublai too, There are demons in the empty places of nature, luring us to our deaths. There are spirits in the darkness whose voices horrify us when we make camp for the night. There are magicians of Kashmir and Tibet, filthy and indecent, and supposedly eating the flesh of executed criminals, but, according to Marco, more skilled in magic than anywhere else in the world. He tells us that they would climb to the roof of Kublai's palace when the clouds were threatening, and shield their Khan from bad weather even while rain and lightning stormed all around. They could also cause tempests to arise accompanied with flashes of lightning and thunderbolts, and produce many other miraculous effects. They could make vessels of wine and milk fill the Khan's cups, as if done by an invisible hand, and then cause the cups to float through the air to his table, untouched. They did whatever they willed with their infernal arts, though Marco admits that this last example... Stretched credibility. Elsewhere, we read about the Yunnan province, which does not get a glowing review in this travel guide. The atmosphere was so foul in the summer that merchants would actually leave for healthier air in order to escape from death. The people used poison on their arrows and carried poison on their person. Distinguished strangers were murdered in order for their spirits to be captured to the benefit of their killer's household. And when a rich person fell ill, there was sorcery. Or rather, there was shamanism, which amounts to much the same thing in Marco's account. Long, ritualized sessions of music and dancing, leading to possession by the evil spirit that had caused the illness, and, having found from that spirit which deity had been offended, a sacrifice of sheep, followed by feasting on the meat by the shamans themselves. Quote, And thus do the demons sport with the blindness of these deluded and wretched people. Or so one description concludes perhaps another bit of editorializing on the part of a scribe along the way. These were some of the things Marco might have told Kublai about, as he apparently wandered his Khan's domains. But what took him on those travels? As I mentioned, Marco is said to have gone out on the business of the Khan, gathering stories of what he'd seen and heard. He'd apparently resolved an unspecified important concern in one city, earning Kublai's trust. He went west as the Khan's ambassador for a time. He was sent elsewhere to examine the customs revenues. He governed Yangzhou for three years, though again, it's generally thought that he didn't. One analysis regarding Marco's activities is that he was involved in salt administration, and certainly there are no shortage of references to salt in the text. In what is now northeastern Afghanistan, salt was mined from the mountains. In Tibet, it was collected from salt springs and boiled down in small pans. In Yunnan province, it was produced from brine wells to the enrichment of the locals and their khan alike. In the region governed by Hangzhou, it was harvested from the salt lagoons which dried up in the summer. All told, this was a very salty book. But all of this is not to say that Marco necessarily played this role either. Salt was immensely important to Yuan China's economy, and the revenues involved excited his interest in demonstrating the vastness of this distant civilization. And besides, the idea of a salt-based empire would have been cozily familiar to the Venetian, his old home city itself having established a great deal of its power on a monopoly over the very same resource. So, Marco the Salt Administrator? Well, maybe. What seems fairly likely is that Marco was involved in administration of some sort, as an overseer or accounting official. His grasp of Yuan finances, customs, organizational structure, and taxes seems to indicate it, and something of an itinerary has been mapped out along these lines by Penghai, and fairly convincingly too. Starting from early 1275, he has Marco in Ningxia, for three years, and then in Yunnan and Vietnam until 1280. From there, he's in the capital of Daidu for two years, and then sent as an accounting official to Yangzhou from 1282 until 1284, and then on to Hangzhou into 1285. He's in the field with Kublai in 1287, when his Khan dealt with the challenge of Nayan, as covered in a previous episode, and then he was off to Southeast Asia for three years before heading for home. Is this accurate? It certainly could be. There's a lot of supporting or at least suggestive evidence, if nothing one could call conclusive. We have, then, this developing picture of a man who really did go to China, really did meet the Khan and serve him in some capacity, and who may or may not have worked in the salt industry or as a roving accountant. And maybe we can zoom in a little further. Stephen Haw and others have zoomed in and suggested that the picture we get could match that of one of the Keshig, the Khan's 12,000-strong personal guard, whose members were often dispatched on tasks as needed, and could even rise to become generals or senior administrators. It's a tantalizing possibility. It's also a fairly realistic one that still fits with our romantic image of Marco as a loyal servant to the Khan, and whose business might believably take him abroad in the empire. You can picture him there, waiting upon Kublai, and available for his order to spin him to this town or that, to see to some managerial need or financial assessment, and then returning to thrill Kublai with intricate descriptions of all that he'd seen. It's all very cinematic, and Marco himself mentions the Keshig too. You must know, he says, that the great Khan, to maintain his state, hath a guard of twelve thousand horsemen, who are styled Keshikans which is, as much to say, knights devoted to their lord. Not that he keeps these for fear of any man whatever, but merely because of his own exalted dignity. Of course, what Marco does not say here is that he was one of those knights devoted to their lord. He does not say that he did the Khan's bidding as a member of this fiercely loyal personal guard, and maybe there was good reason for that. Maybe even with all that carrying on about the near heavenly nature of his most supreme wonderfulness, the Khan of Khans, it was a step too far to be communicating to his European audience that his adoration had extended to this point, that he, now a respected citizen of Venice, had, as historian John Mann puts it, actually worshipped a pagan emperor as if he were a god. Or maybe this is another case of projecting the fantastic back on Marco's story. Maybe the reason for the omission was something less complicated. Maybe Marco simply wasn't a member of the Keswick at all. Marco Polo remains a charmingly mysterious fellow. If he's now been solidly tied to a real stay in 13th century China, there's still a great deal of uncertainty that surrounds him. With the potential for new information to be discovered or old ideas overturned, Peng Hai thinks he has identified the elusive Marco in the pages of the Yuan the history of the Yuan, and in the figure of a man who clashed with a powerful family at Kublai's court. This man had been arrested for breaking a rule which did not allow men to walk on the same side as women within the palace, but he had been a favorite of the Khan, and Kublai had asked after him and hearing of his predicament, had him freed. It fits nicely enough with the material of the polo text, and it would indeed be quite something, the long-sought sign of Marco's passing in a Chinese source. But that's about as definite as we can be at this point. Perhaps new signs will emerge. That's where I'm going to leave things for today. This has been a far-from-all-encompassing look at the topic. There's a lot more out there, and I haven't even got to the question of authorship yet but I hope I've given you some idea of how Marco and his book have come to be viewed and why. If you are enjoying the podcast, please do check out that Patreon page, which again, you can find at patreon.com forward slash human circus. There are rewards which include early access to ad-free episodes, and also scripts if you like to read along or look something up after, and from the $1 per month level on up, you're entered in draws for thematically appropriate books, in which I'll try to transcend my usual shockingly ugly handwriting to convey my thanks. And on that note, thank you again, those of you who have already signed up. In a few weeks, I'll be back with more Marco Polo. We've got a couple of episodes left in this series still, and with this next one, we'll be getting away from China and heading for Myanmar, Japan, and elsewhere, and seeing the limits of Yuan-Mongol expansion. I'll talk to you then. circus will return.